0: Okay. Good morning, Lauren.
1: Hi there, Nir.
0: Hi. So this is Nir Izakovich, and this is the Ethics in Action podcast from UMass Boston's Applied Ethics Center. And my guest today is Professor Lauren Barthold. Uh, Professor Barthold um, has taught at Gordon and Endicott and uh, Emerson and has written extensively about hermeneutics, and uh, about Gadamer on hermeneutics, but we are here today to discuss her newest book on uh, civil dialogue. The book is called Overcoming Polarization in the Public Square, Civic Dialogue. Uh, Very, very timely. So, Lauren, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, When did the book come out?
1: It came out in June. Okay. So, pretty recently.
0: Yeah, uh, just in time to give us guiding. <laughs> <laughs> some
1: would say too late, but already.
0: <laughs> so, uh, Lauren, maybe if I can uh, start with asking you a, uh, a broad question um, What is civic dialogue? What are some of the preconditions for having it? Uh, why did you decide writing the book in whatever order? like you said, to write the book in whatever order you want to take those.
1: Right. Yeah, thanks. Um, So for me, the book offers uh, um, an approach to civic discourse, to political discourse that is particularly apt for polarized times. Um, Our our main tradition in, in Western political philosophy has been that of deliberation, which focuses heavily on argumentation and persuasion with the aim of eventually having to come to some sort of political consensus, right? Setting laws, et cetera, Uh, which is is great and important. And there've been a lot of changes and nuances to uh, deliberative democracy over the decades. But I think the situation that we find ourselves in uh, more and more today, maybe some would argue it's always been like this. is how do we even get to the space come into the space how do we get people into the space in order to deliberate well and walterson and armstrong who came out with a book i think it was uh, a year or two ago about how to argue um even admits that you can't have people argue well unless they're willing to do so and so this is really the start starting place of my book is how do we motivate people to want to come and talk across difference Mm -hmm. in a way that is going to build trust and really establish a sort of communicative foundation for a culture, for a community.
0: right. Um, So does anything, as I was reading about your book, I was remembering the you know, the beginning of the uh, Republic where uh, Paul Marcus stands in Socrates' way and he says, well, you know, um, can I persuade you to move out of my way or something like that? And he says, how will you persuade me if I won't listen? Right? Right. You know, made so it made me think about what are some of the preconditions to, as you say, get people into the space where they would start deliberating well in the first place? What has to right, yeah. be in place?
1: I, I began um, with that story um, uh, in the opening pages of of The Republic um, in my introduction because I think it really shows one crucial feature of civic dialogue and that is appealing to people's interests and values via a story, right? The focus on first-person stories, on narratives, on Experiences that would really touch people and motivate them and pique their interest, and so when Socrates learns um, about the, the the torch race on horseback, that's not an argument, um, but it appeals to something that he's interested in, and this, to me, really symbolizes what civic di- how how civic dialogue really has to start, and and what it's Um, key features are it's a way of exchanging first person stories experiences with others um, without first getting into the argument over position so I like to talk about how dialogue civic dialogue really privileges the person over the position so I'm more interested in connecting to you as a person rather than necessarily having to agree on a position.
0: Yeah, yeah, and this is the sort of view of positions from the getting to yes uh, uh, world of positions versus interests and stuff like that?
1: Well, a yes and no. I mean, the getting to yes is used in uh, mediation conflict uh, transformation, which this t- approach to dialogue can be utilized in that way too, but in, Civic dialogue when we're laying the the foundation for community discourse The goal is not to get to yes as in yes We all agree the goal is not agreement. It's not um, to make everybody the same so Civic dialogue really takes seriously a pluralistic Democracy that we're always going to have difference The key is how do we deal with it? And how do we talk through difference, over difference, inviting difference, in order to uh, affirm a pluralistic democracy. Yeah. So I wouldn't say it's getting to yes.
0: Yeah, just the ter- the terminology of positions uh, and mm. the positions to sort of um, uh, understanding if there could be uh, uh, <clears throat> some a reinterpretation of the interests that underlie them uh, reminded me but but yeah I, I definitely see um, I, I definitely see the the difference but so to go back to something you said a minute ago, uh, it, the sort of invitation into the uh, uh, space in which you might uh, ultimately talk focuses more on the person than on the position, more on a particular story uh, but sometimes if people have really terrible and crappy positions it says something about them as persons doesn't it
1: (laughs) it does and um although you know that's i would say that's more of a reaction and a sort of initial judgment that it's important to explore beneath Mm -hmm. um and so i think when it comes to um you know, when it comes to dialoguing across difference, I think one thing that that your comment touches on is the role of identity in formulating positions. So I think in the, you know, in the 70s and 80s, people, maybe 90s, people used to talk about worldview as informing our beliefs, right? So if you think of sort of beliefs, political beliefs on this level, um, and then I think they're funded in some way by I would say more identities. So what happens when I hear, if I hear you say a belief that I don't like, I'm immediately probably going to attach that to an identity of yours. Now that identity could be right or wrong, but I'm going to make up lots of stories about that identity. (laughs) And so what dialogue does is it moves people even below the identity to fundamental values of being human. So i believe identities are important my previous book was on social identities um but when they become charged and we tell stories about the other person's identity which blocks us from seeing what ultimately we have in common then that becomes problematic hmm. so again it's not that we're it's not that all beliefs are equal or all positions are equal yeah right? Yeah. Um, and sooner or later, a law will have to be made. We'll have to defund the police or not.
0: Right. right, But
1: how are we as a society prepared to deal with a law that's brought into place where not everybody's going to agree?
0: Right, right.
1: The dialogue sort of backs us up and, and sort of excavates underneath both this, the, the top layer of specific beliefs, identity, to go to a deeper level of values, where I believe that that we do find values in common.
0: So part of the operative assumption in being moved to do that is that a person's um, positions won't exhaust their identity. Is that that fair?
1: Yeah. I think that's a I think that's a great way to put it, and I would say, and their identities don't exhaust who they are as a human being. Mm-hmm. So again, I I'm not against identities. I think we cannot function without identities, um, and they are necessary. But what dialogue allows is through an exchange of allowing each individual to speak about what they value in their own identities and the experiences that they've had in a given topic or position those particularities allow people to go underneath to values that are held in common
0: yeah um i'm reminded of um uh i'm blanking on the uh, novelist's uh name but there's that novel um Oh, Hornby, Nick Hornby, uh, uh, there's a, he has this, uh, uh, he has a lot of funny novels, but one of them is uh, called How to Be Good, and it opens with this scene of a woman who uh, breaks up with her uh, husband, who you know tells her husband that she wants to uh, get divorced while she's sitting in a, uh, uh, a parking lot on the cell phone, and she kind of reflects to herself and says, you know, this kind of makes me a terrible person, and then she raises this question that I've always found fascinating about, like, you know, she's a doctor and she has all kinds of, you know, interesting and surprising uh, aspects to her identity and beyond identities as a person. But she asks, like, you know, do you sometimes get judged by your one-offs? Are some things that you do, divorcing your husband over the cell phone or car park or whatever, are some things that you do bad enough to kind of... Actually, color your identities. Uh, um, you know the the funny example that I think uh, Hornby gives is like, um, you know, if you assassinate Kennedy, you don't get to say. But in the other parts of my life, I'm you know kind of a nice guy. Now that's you know that's overly dramatic, but it it seems like it requires a real patience, generosity. And empathy, the kind of dialogical approach that you propose as preconditions, just to sort of take our contemporary moment if somebody says, you know, This mask wearing of yours is, you know, really hurting my, you know, personal liberties and I really hate it when I can't get all the nice fresh air that I want through Nasal breathing and you know, whatever it does to your grandmother, it does to her. Um, Does that
1: yeah so so I, yeah, I hear you and I like to think of um, the practice of dialogue as actually cultivating civic virtues and I talk about this in, in um, uh, my final chapter that civic dialogue cultivates civic virtues like openness. so, because civic dialogue and the, the particular approach that i spend the most time on in this book is one that's been developed by essential partners it's called reflective structure dialogue and it does require a facilitator it requires communication agreements um, it is structured with timed go rounds for reflection with questions that are um uh, created in advance so it's it's highly it's highly structured Number one. So what that structure does is it doesn't require somebody to have a patient character (laughs) coming in because the structures are simply going to ask people, you know, now this is a time for silence and now we're going to go around and everybody's going to have two minutes to speak and you can't interrupt. So whether you're a patient person, an extrovert or an introvert, whatever your character is, it doesn't, doesn't really matter. But what I argue in the end is that it's actually a way with enough practice when we build these sort of uh, dialogic practices into a community and it becomes part of the culture of a community, then the civic virtues are, are uh, more likely to flourish where people are more than spontaneously or naturally able to listen to one another. So it really doesn't have anything to do with one's feelings um we talk about the dialogic muscle the 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 muscle of dialogue it just needs to be exercised Mm -hmm. and it's hard (laughs) it's hard as my husband frequently reminds me when he says "Hmm, don't you write about dialogue shouldn't you be a little bit better right it's not it's not easy Um, but with the with the structure it's it helps people um be able to have the practices that they might not naturally
0: inhabit I I think I think I'm starting to get it um, is dialogue in understood in that way an independent good or is it mainly preparatory for deliberation being understood as the main event
1: Oh yeah, that's a that's a great question. So, um, no, I wouldn't say it's only, I would say it's both. So it can, it certainly, I think is important because again, as we, as we, um, are members of a society that is based on laws, we do need to have, have laws made and we will not always agree. But as I talk about in my second chapter on Buber, due to the, due to our human condition, we are fundamentally beings that want to connect with one another. So I like to talk about us being, rather than rational beings, as the Western philosophers have always talked about it, I like to emphasize the fact that we are relational beings. Mm -hmm. And so this type of dialogue has many uses. I mean, I use it in my classroom. Um, You can use it in smaller settings. So it can be a a way to help people connect anytime, even if there's not polarization. You can still use this as a way to really go deeper, to help people listen to difference without reacting. That's, that's the key that the structure sets up. How can I really listen with openness and curiosity to somebody who's really different and maybe whose beliefs really trigger me and I abhor, but they're still a human being.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what, so it seems like one, lead-in to that is the kind of uh, uh, storytelling, because it kicks us, as it were, into a different mode, into a more narrative and detail-oriented uh, and less judgmental uh, mode. Um,
1: and it also, sorry to interject, it also what storytelling also does is really exposes the gray areas.
0: Yeah. So can
1: I, can I just give one example?
0: I mean, I was actually going to ask for that.
1: <laughs> so um, I'm involved in my neighborhood, in my, in my cities, um, uh, some justice work. And uh, we've been doing a lot of work uh, in support of Black Lives Matter. And there is a woman who's very um, engaged in this work, a black woman. And one time she was talking with a white police officer. And you can imagine that's sort of the quintessential polarization there. And part, of, when asked about her story, part of her story is that my black daughter is married to a white police officer.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I love him.
0: Yeah.
1: And I've come to love his family.
0: Yeah.
1: Do these people walk away agreeing? Do these two walk away agreeing on policy? No. But all of a sudden there's something that softens when you see, wow, this woman who's so active and so committed to making changes has white law enforcement in her family that she loves and respects.
0: No, no, I that, that's a wonderful example. And I mean, I, I guess one sort of puzzle that I've always had in this context, so I, I've done research in the past on political reconciliation. Uh, okay. Uh, international uh, context and on the role of uh, uh, empathy or uh, what uh, Smith called uh, uh, sympathy uh, in that context. And, you know, I, I really agree that this kind of um, dramatic, detailed, narrative-driven information about others is probably a precondition for starting to have the more rational conversations about rights and about, you know, who deserves what and where and so on and so forth. And you know, in the Israeli-Palestinian context, for example, which is one of the cases I looked at, you know, part of the problem is that so many Israelis and so Palestinians know absolutely nothing about the everyday lives of each other and about, you know, what, um, actual everyday experience looks like. Uh, But they've gone through so much that they also don't want to find out that they see most, um, most Israelis see, or at least used to see, or still probably now more than ever see any Palestinian as a representative of the collective identity and uh, uh, vice versa. And, you know, my, my intuition was if you, for example, are you know, uh, find yourself for one reason or another at a roadblock and see that, you know, there's this old gentleman who needs dialysis treatment and can't get through. And you think, oh, my dad has kidney problems and he can get all the dialysis treatment he wants whenever he wants. And, you know, something's moved in you beyond the sort of identity questions. But most of the time people in that context will tell themselves comfortably, you know, well, why would I go to the roadblock in the first place? And then you won't see. And then the sort of the rest of the chain uh uh won't happen so in this case in the sort of in, in uh, uh, the uh, the case that you tell us about from beverly that's a special set of circumstances but what moves people i guess my question is what moves people to be willing to pay attention to somebody else's narrative story in the first place yeah
1: yeah that's uh, that's the uh... <laughs> 3 trillion, I don't know what number dollar figure we're up to now, $3 trillion question, right? Um, And I should first say that, you know, dialogue is not a panacea. It's not going to solve all the problems all the time, right? There are many other forms of uh, political action that are are necessary at times. Um, But also, secondly, then, um, I don't think we have to start um, with uh, 100% turnout from a community to get things going. Sure. In fact, oftentimes, um, and this is what I've seen in my community and also Essential Partners, who I mentioned, when they, they started, they got their start by bringing the leaders of the two sides of the abortion issue together okay. behind closed doors. Just the leaders, I think they had about six leaders from each side, met in, you know, in... Um, uh, together um, behind closed doors for about three years. Um, and the, the goal was not to come to agreement, but was to, this is the time where after an abortion doctor had just been shot in the Boston area. Uh, so how do we de-escalate the violence? So, I mean, if you had asked those leaders, maybe three years prior to the violence, would they be willing to talk just talk to the other side? Yeah. Probably not. Right. So I think there's an exigency, right? There's this necessity today with literal and figurative fires burning in our towns. And so I think in, in in my town, I think that the most motivated people have been the police officers, have been the activists. Like the most the people who sit on the most extreme sides. Um, of course, you're going to get a lot of citizens that don't want to want to talk, but I think, again, it's like it's building a culture, mm-hmm. um, and that comes from all places, whether it's, quote-unquote, on top from the leaders, um, the professional leaders of a of the community, or whether it's really the grassroots. And I think at the end of the day, most people, if you get them off social media, want to have a good conversation with someone they're tired they're tired of the shouting most people I mean of course they're the trolls but most people they want to understand and I and I've met a lot of people like that a lot of people who one person I've been speaking with lately um, does not believe in because he doesn't believe in race therefore he doesn't believe in racism Mm -hmm. so you know we're trying to have a Conversation, you know, just to understand each other and where where we're coming from. And um, but, can I say something about your use of empathy?
0: Yeah,
1: um, which set off some bells in my. So I actually argue in my book that empathy is not the goal of dialogue, and I don't. Well, I'm not going to get into all of the details of why, but there are problems. Um, with both cognitive empathy and affective empathy that I just don't think are possible. I don't think that's possible. And I think just because you empathize with somebody, there's no guarantee that you're going to change or help them or even see them as a human being. So um, although, let me just say as an aside to that, I'm, my current work is is looking is revisiting the term empathy to maybe try to reclaim it a bit through the theory of ena- enactivism. Yeah. So anyway, I'm not going to go down that road now, but what I see as the goal of um, dialogue is mutual understanding. Yeah. Now, now, some people do identify and define mutual understanding as empathy, but I define mutual understanding as the ability uh, to allow the other's claim to be, right. The, the, uh, the, to allow the other to make their claim to it exist. So it's an existential claim that leads to mutual under or that characterizes mutual understanding. It's their right to exist. My ability to acknowledge their right to exist. So again, on a very basic and fundamental value level of values.
0: Although you don't have to have dialogue with somebody to acknowledge their right to exist. You could say, "I acknowledge your right to exist, and I would really prefer to not see it. Well, you could have. Yeah, a-
1: have a- I, I mean, and and I think it's one thing to say. I don't want to see you oh. or I really dislike your thoughts. And it's another to say, I'm ne- never going to talk to you. And um, um, I'm going to do all I can to uh, belittle you uh, and maybe oppress and harm you. Right. So there's a, there's a big continuum on the view of um, you have the right to exist. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, see you type thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, you no, know, I, I mean, I, I, I'm on board with your skepticism of empathy. And after looking into the role of empathy and political reconciliation processes, after a few years, my main conclusion was to write another book on ceasefires rather than political reconciliation, because I thought that you know, if empathy was logically part of the condition for reconciling or not logically, then maybe reconciling might be too lofty. So the empathy. The empathy question was, it seems that there are common um, conditions between what you call dialogue and empathy. Namely, you can't empathize with anyone if you Don't have a detailed understanding of Circumstances and it also seemed like you can't begin dialogue on your account of dialogue if you don't have a detailed understanding of the story that pertains to your interlocutors uh, uh, life. And insofar as if that's accurate or fair, then it seems like the same thing kicks both of those off, even if they're not the same.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't say that you have to have have something like empathy to to begin a dialogue. Mm -hmm. Because I could enter into a dialogue, as I have done with somebody thinking, wow, this person is a racist. I don't know how I'm going to talk to them. I had very little empathy,
0: yeah, yeah, no, I think what I'm saying is that knowing something about the story that pertains mm-hmm. to a person's life can generate empathy with them as a person in spite of their uh, yes position right uh,
1: right, right, so I think that's the work of dialogue when you allow people's stories, which are the particulars of of their own unique uh, social identities, when you allow them to come out, those differences and particularities, interestingly, what emerges underneath is the common value of humanity. And it's not just, again, it's not a propositional assent that, oh, now I acknowledge that yes, you are a human being, as to some other type of animal, but rather I'm actually allowing you to make that claim yourself, that you have made the claim that you are valuable as a human being
0: mm-hmm.
1: you have it's your claim it's a right to exist it's not just me checking off a box
0: right right now if things work as you hope they do uh, in a dialogical encounter like this what happens what what is what is the sort of hoped-for sequence if you wish
1: Right. Yeah. So again, I mean, just depending on the on the situation, it's I don't think a a one off dialogue is is often going to change much. Um, people that do this, uh, professionally, you know, have series of dialogues over weeks, months, and years. Um, and to me, it's, again, if you think about dialogue as a muscle, it's not that we just go to the gym, hit our fitness goal, and then stop (laughs) exercising, right? It's a lifelong commitment. So, um, I would like to see, you know, dialogic communities, right? Dialogue as a core, um, practice, uh, in communities that keep going. So, I mean, one thing to answer, one answer to your question is to build dialogic communities because I do not think that pluralistic democracies are possible without them. So if we're serious about pluralistic democracies, which unfortunately I know not everybody (laughs) these days, but if you are, dialogue can get you there. But dialogue can also lead to this mutual understanding so that when policy is passed, so again, as I mentioned, if you have these sort of communities, then you will have a um, more productive space for deliberation and policy uh, deliberation and consensus. It will be better. We still not will have agreement, but when a law is passed, those who disagree with it, because they've felt heard and acknowledged and seen, I believe, will be less inclined to then go off in divisive and polarizing paths, right? They're not gonna be lighting Black Lives Matter signs on fire as has been happening up in the North Shore and I'm sure many other places as well, right? So I think it's, um, everybody wants to, this is back to the Buber piece about connection. Everybody wants to feel connected and part of the community. Dialogue
0: is a means to that. End. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so I guess to pick up on something that you're saying and um, So I know that again, this is not the exact same thing, but sort of related some of the uh, research on you know what's called the contact hypothesis this idea that being in contact uh, with other people from a a perceived opposing uh, group can help uh, uh, reduce tensions and so on and so forth some of the pushback against that has been that you know something like this if the black lives matter and the cop uh the black lives matter activist and the cop meet then two things uh, uh, might happen. One is maybe the Black Lives Matter activist decides this cop is OK, but the rest are still terrible. Or uh, she or he might tell themselves, um, actually, the cops are not as bad as I thought, but then the positive impression fades over time. So this idea that you either make the person you talk to an exception or that the impact fades. Are, are, are you finding any of that? Yeah, I
1: mean, I've seen similar studies about longevity and that's uh, about these uh, these effects over time, right? They do tend to diminish. But that's why I think if we can if we can think about dialogue as changing culture. Right. Right. Not just about, you know, I spent a lot of time in my book talking. It's not just about individual beliefs and individual minds that are being changed. Right. It's a culture. So maybe the next time that that Black Lives Activist, you know, BLM activists might be um, more open, and I believe that actually they really are open to talking with um, with police. And I've seen this individual speaking with uh, people who have been out counter protesting in terms of the um, Blue Lives Matter. So um, again, I think that. So for that question, I think it's repetition, and for the other part of your question, it's also repetition. It's to, it's to keep going. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's I think that, that that's absolutely the the right the right response to those uh, to those concerns. That that just means that you do more of the dialogue rather than accept the criticism uh, of it. Um, a kind of uh, a kind of Humean question, uh, uh, if you'll permit, about um, about dialogue in part it seems that we're so bad at this because of sort of contingent geographical historical reasons that i mean the country is really big uh there's much we don't have too many joint experiences and joint institutions you know i'm i i'm originally from israel which uh even before you um you know, think about all of its uh, uh, external conflicts as a terribly internally conflicted place. Uh, But part of what's interesting there is, I one, it's a a lot of people in a small space, so they, you know, almost necessarily have to uh, interact. Um, But also there's a bunch of institutions that cut across uh, uh, sectors of the population. Uh, uh, like the army, like with all of its uh, problems, the uh, universal healthcare system, that gives people some joint experiences so that they can say, you know, oh, I love Netanyahu, I hate Netanyahu, but we were both screwed over by our HMO. So, you know, we can talk about that. Uh, nothing much like that here. Um, so to what extent do you think this is part of the human condition uh, as you're putting it earlier, and to what extent do you think it's a function of contingent circumstance, this you know, failure? You mean the
1: po- polarization? Yeah. Particularly, yeah, yeah. Um, I do think that um, there's a lot of contingencies that have exacerbated it in this country, right? A, a lot, a lot. Um, I don't think, as I as I.